the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Good morning. Good to be in front of you. Some of you were skeptical about that. I heard that. The, uh, the truth is that it's uh, been a, not that long of a season from the last time I preached here. And I always wondered, I need that gap in time to fill up myself with examples and things I'm reading, and et cetera. I've discovered I have a vast trove of suffering <clears throat> personal um, disappointments, and, and also moments to be glad and thankful that have happened in the last two or three weeks. So I, I draw from a deeper well than I thought, but I look forward to um, sharing the story with you this morning. We're continuing to look at the book of Exodus and considering the connection between the life of Moses and the people of Israel and the gospel, and then rediscovering some of that language from the gospel as well. <clears throat> now, I was going to start, I have this illustration that I was going to end with, because it's, it's really a great illustration of what happened in Egypt, but I, I felt like it deserved to be up front, so I'm going to use it now. In my, in my job, I work at Surge, a mission agency that a lot of you know, and I receive all of their updates from missionaries, which at least two or three a day, and I read them. Uh, they're great reading, um, and it's exciting to hear what's happening. I got this one this week, and, it, and very, you'll see why it's so relevant. It was about um, 
came from the field and was about a relief work being done in Pakistan to the victims of the latest catastrophe there. And then a local team who we were providing with funding was given the opportunity to use leftover funds from this drive for another very good purpose, namely freeing Christian slaves. And they said this, through this persecution, their plight was also brought forward. He's talking about those who they were helping. And our local worker was able to see the release of three Christian families, eight children, six adults. At least two of the families have been enslaved for over 20 years. Not knowing anything about slavery in Pakistan, I asked if I could have some context. And it was told this, you know how the Hebrews were enslaved to make bricks for Pharaoh? It's like that. He went on to share that most common form is brick, brick kiln slavery. If someone takes out a loan and can't pay it back, then they and their children are taken as collateral and forced to make bricks to pay the debt. However, the system's rigged to keep people from ever getting out. Unofficial estimates put Christian slaves at over a million, perhaps two. And the global slavery index indicates over three million slaves total and four million working in slave-like conditions in Pakistan. So in case we're you know, tempted to think, well, that happened, this happened, the story we're talking about, Exodus, happened so many years ago, it's, you know, there's no end to the kind of suffering that humans will inflict on each other. If we think that sin is something passe, um, maybe this will help us understand it's not at that level. But it can be, I think it can be difficult for us to identify with the culture in Exodus that we read about. If you think about it in terms of our history as a nation, if you went back 400 years, you'd be somewhere on a ship crossing the Atlantic in search of religious freedom, about 150 people. You Puritans getting here for the first time. That was about 400 years ago for us. That's about 13 or 15 generations Lots of great greats in there. And, and, so, and so just to get a grip on, some, somewhat put our arms around what 400 years means. And you have other aspects of the culture. Um, one of the, the most important ones to think about is how important the eldest son was in a family, their critical role in perpetuating the family's existence. I don't have much experience waiting 400 years. I don't look back at my family tree and see a grandparent who is waiting to be rescued from somewhere. <clears throat> the closest I come is March of 2020 when it was declared that COVID was an international public health emergency. And then deaths in the United States went over a million. I can remember when this pandemic started thinking, we just have to be patient through this summer. And then surely by Christmas it'll be over. And then the next Christmas came. And we said, surely it'll be over by this Christmas. And then in 2022, Nancy and I were overseas and found that we had to take a proctored COVID test to get back in the States. So that's, that's about the closest I'd come to imagining sitting around waiting for something to end. That waiting in comparison to the 400 years that this nation waited for their enslavement to end. Um, I'm, I'm pretty confident around in, in uh, speaking to a group of people that almost all of you, or all of you, 
have had some experience of waiting for a cloud of darkness to end on your life. And that waiting is painful. It exposes our most basic assumptions about life and justice and fairness. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you're merely using it to cord a box, but suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? Our desire to see the broken repaired and the sick healed and relationships restored is, is how we're, it's sort of how we are built. That's what we, we long for those things to happen. And the story of Exodus is this message in scripture of how that redemption comes. Last week, Ed had the first nine plagues that were inflicted on Egypt. And Pharaoh, as God attempted to persuade them that it was in their best interest to let these people go, let the Israelites be released from this captivity. But the first nine didn't work, did not do that for him. But this tenth is a different, different animal. First of all, it doesn't apply only to Egypt. The slaughter of the eldest precious son of all families is the one that will finally compel Pharaoh to send the Israelites off. But this one will only come down on the Egyptians, unlike the first nine, which were limited in, in their impact on the Egyptians only. So the Israelites were spared those nine. This one will only come down to the Egyptians and pass by the Israelites if the people follow those prescribed procedures that Susan read to us. The procedures of a spotless lamb being sacrificed and the blood from that lamb being painted on the doorframes of their houses. There are only two possible outcomes to this plague. A dead son or a dead lamb. And the consequences of not following these very specific protocols apply equally to all who refuse to comply, Egyptian or Israelite. The, the sign over the doorpost, that blood, did not discriminate based on past behavior or the character of the residents or how well they were doing financially. There was no quality of their life in there that mattered. The only thing that mattered, follow these procedures, put the blood on your doorpost, and you will be passed over. It's a sign to God, who obviously during the first nine didn't need that sign to determine who gets it and who doesn't. But this required the household to put their faith in God and go out and do something to be part of this salvation. I would think, maybe I'm imposing my own character on this a little bit, but I would think some were very glad and, and had great hope, and others wondered whether this would really be the one that procures their freedom. Regardless of how they felt, how they had performed before this, the act of applying that lamb's blood would save their eldest child and send Pharaoh over the edge. So this, this makes this plague, uh, plague a very personal one. The people are not being addressed as a nation 
specifically, but the household has to prepare the meal, oversee it. There was no priest to come oversee it. Save some of the blood for painting, and they're considered as individual households, whether or not they'll be passed over. That blood over the doorpost marks them as a community as well, of course, because they're all doing it if they want to be saved. But each one has to decide if they'll follow the protocol they've been given. It, it sort of a, raises a very sort of intimate question about this plague. What, what will you do in response to what you've been asked to do by God? By painting the doorframe, each household was declaring their dependence on God, who they'd been waiting for for 400 years to rescue them. Consider what identification marks us here at Bridge, both individually and corporately. These days, in polarization and everything else going on, it would seem that Christians can begin to think that what represents us is the sign that's stuck in your front lawn. And I'm talking from both sides of the political affiliation. In both sides, there is a sense that our salvation, our rescue, will come through leadership or our finances or our declaration that we are chosen, we're special, and in a different standing with God. And that is not the story of Exodus. The Exodus was identifying, the, ex, the Israelites were identifying themselves as the children of God by putting the blood on their doorframe. The Exodus of the Israelites is a story of redemption, which foreshadows the greater redemption, but is not the conquering of Egyptians by corporate strength, but by a lamb's death that is the portal to exit slavery and eventually the portal to a greater redemption. At the core of this passage, and in a real sense, the core of the message of the Bible is about that metaphor of the lamb. And it must have seen an unlikely means of getting out of Egypt. As Ed pointed out last week, after the first nine plagues, why didn't Moses just strike the ground and wipe out the Egyptians and, and get rid of their oppressors? Instead, it is through a lamb that the rescue will be obtained, a solution that seems to be out of sorts when we consider how we might want to be saved. In the words of uh, Leonard Cohen, famous philosopher, maybe, <laughs> love is not a victory march but a broken hallelujah. Denise Levertov and I included this, for those of you who know me, no big surprise, included this poem in my notes. It talks about the, the um, strangeness of this method of bringing redemption. Given that lambs are infant sheep, that sheep are afraid and foolish and lack the means of self-protection, having neither rage nor claws, venom nor cunning, what then is the Lamb of God. There's also an image of Christ in Scripture that talks about Christ, Jesus as a lion, the Lion of Judah, and can give the impression that through strength, great strength will overcome. 
personal tragedy and failures. Um, Tim Keller made this distinction about Jesus' lion. Let me read it. He is the lion and the lamb. Despite his high claims, he is never pompous. He never seems standing on his own dignity. Despite being absolutely approachable to the weakest and broken, he is completely fearless before the corrupt and powerful. He has tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence, unhesitating authority with a complete lack of self-absorption, holiness and unending convictions without any shortage of approachability. When you read that description and try to compare yourself to it, which I wouldn't recommend, but just think about some of the, the contrasts there. Tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence. That thread, this thread of the story of the lamb as a sacrificial redemption is, is throughout the Bible. It is almost the theme of the Bible itself. Isaiah 53 is the chapter that depicts the first coming of Christ and death and says this, he was oppressed. And Kim shared this earlier. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is the suffering lamb who was slaughtered by his own people, yet he never once protested about his death. He went willingly where he died in our place. In the book of John, you have the first time in the New Testament that Jesus, that Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. John the Baptist, being a Jew himself and having understood the Passover lamb, sees Jesus walking toward him and exclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Almost any time you see the lamb in the scriptures, it's always used in, in the context of a, as a sacrifice. One of the more famous moments in the Old Testament, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard before, is that story of Abraham. He was uh, instructed to take his son, his eldest son, to the top of the hill and sacrifice him, make him an offering to God. And the story goes this way. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on, the son, on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now that I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld your son, your only son. And then a ram is provided in the thicket, and that is the sacrifice that Abraham makes in place of his son. It's a little hard for us to relate to that story in some ways. I mean, you can't, can't imagine having to make that kind of decision 
and to do what Abraham was about to do. But I, I've been reading um, lately a book about World War II and how so many parents, Jewish parents, had to decide to send their kids away in order to save them. The heartbreaking story of parents who knew it was likely by staying behind they were going to be sent to concentration camps. And this story takes place in France, which at the beginning of the war, people were a little bit surprised that they were transporting Jews from France. But this is what was happening. And so there's the agony of that separation from your child. So it, it, it's not uncontemporary that it was happening elsewhere. And Peter, we read this, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. I like that line, line, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The sacrifice of the unblemished lamb in, in the story in Exodus. The message declared by this blood and the home under the protection of God marked a new beginning, a turning point in the redemptive history that the Bible tells us about. It sort of becomes a portal, Exodus, into what's going to happen in the New Testament. When the Gospels open, there are a lot, numerous parallels between Jesus and Moses and between Jesus and Israel. Jesus was even taken down into Egypt only to return after the death of Herod. And that's to fulfill what the Lord had spoken out of the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Herod's decree to kill all the male children in Bethlehem sort of is this gruesome echo of what Pharaoh did and declaring to kill all the male children of Israel earlier. God's final word to Abraham in that story of Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac was, I will provide for you on that hill, and I will satisfy that debt. That ram he sacrificed there was, again, a foretelling of what was to come, of the next exodus that was to come in the person of Christ. The sacrifice of the Lamb of God traces throughout. And, and, and then there are three impacts of this second exodus. I, I, I'll draw attention to There's a lot more. This, you could preach for five weeks on this topic alone. But it transforms the original Passover. It speaks to suffering. And then it confronts our individualistic, independent approach to life. First, the pa Passover is transformed. Exodus 12 tells us a lot about the Passover and how it was to be observed. The blood of that Passover lamb distinguished the people of God from the Egyptians. An observation of the Passover was a sign of faith. It marked Israel's redemption from slavery and commemorated her birth as a nation. Throughout all of Israel's generations, think about this, that Passover has continued to be celebrated since that time when they, they came out of Egypt as a memorial of God's redemptive act. 
In this passage, God says, you to remember this always and observe it this way. And it's been observed since then for thousands of years through all generations. Then come to the New Testament, and Jesus institutes a Passover meal, doesn't he? He comes to the Last Supper. The last time he'll, he'll dine, he'll eat with his disciples and have a meal. And he ends that meal by instituting a new kind of Passover, something we call communion. It was the night of Passover, so they were celebrating the Passover meal, but at the end, he breaks bread, and he said, this is my body. This is the lamb you needed, and you will receive, because my body will be broken for you. Keep remembering it. And then he shares the cup and says, this is my blood that's going to be spilled for you. Keep remembering it. He's a fulfillment, all, all that was foreshadowed by the Passover lamb. His blood, the blood of the new covenant, satisfies the wrath of God for those who place their faith in him. It was a greater new covenant, the greater act of redemption. The Passover of Exodus became the eternal Passover of communion. And I think it's important to think about the fact that we just don't, we don't come to church and say, okay, one at a time, we're going to celebrate. You don't go home and celebrate communion. You celebrate it as a community. Because again, even though your relationship is personal, our relationship is as a community. And it's important to be reminded of that when we celebrate communion. It speaks to our suffering. If you're being enslaved by somebody, as we heard in the example of the family in Pakistan, or if your life is threatened by illness or any other number of circumstances, you're keenly aware that you need help. You may struggle to have hope, as was likely the experience of some of the Israelites, but the confrontation with the sacrifice of Jesus gives us a different perspective on suffering. His unjust, violent death confronts us with love that is without condition. You may struggle to have hope, but you're confronted with this love. It means that when Jesus says, I'm with you, even in the darkest night, he can say that because he experienced that darkness and does not leave us to experience it alone. It addresses our suffering. It confronts our individualist, independent approach to life. None of us have that problem, right? We, we approach life differently than that, maybe. Because this redemption is confronting you with the possibility of being free, not just from the threat of death and suffering, but also to not be captive to self-constructed means of being, feeling good about ourselves or being content or having to always be competing with other people, people to be affirmed. I don't know which of those things you fall into, but I fall into all of them, of just what's important to me, what makes me feel good, what, what satisfies me. And that becomes the thing I sort of paint over my doorframe to protect me. This only works 
participating in the blood of the Lamb, if there's an admission that you need help. If you don't need help, you don't need help. If you don't think you need help, you won't seek help. But you need to admit that you need help. It's broken, and I cannot fix it. That's one of the most annoying things in my life. I cannot stand when things get broken. I just, we had a, um, we had a leak in our roof. And I had a roofer over literally three times doing repairs. Every time it would rain, the next time the leak would roof again. The third time, I thought, it's finally fixed. You know, it has to be. So, of course, I started patching up the places where the roof had impacted the ceiling that it was leaking over. And, yes, the leak happened again. Until finally I took more radical measures, which I couldn't do, and finally the leak ended. Although I've now waited about six months to be sure. So I still have the crack in the ceiling over my head in my office. I still have the places where the paint's chipped away. I suppose I don't have as much faith as I should in that roofer, but, but we don't want things to be broken. But we have to admit that we cannot fix them sometimes. It requires us to be willing to identify with the lamb. One of the, one of the things that's happened is um, the word, when we say the word sin, sometimes it has a, an archaic sort of feel to it, like how come we're still talking about sin? Um, Barbara Brown Taylor in a book of hers says, how can we speak of sin if we have forsaken the language that best describes it? Sin is not only an important concept for Christians to be familiar with. Sin, here's an unusual one, sin is our only hope. Because the recognition that something is wrong is the first step towards making it right again. There is no help for those who admit no need of help. There is no repair for those who insist that nothing is broken. And there is no hope of transformation for a world whose inhabitants accept that it is sadly but irreversibly wrecked. That's a, a strong statement. How can we speak of sin if we have forsaken the language? It is the recognition that something's wrong in the, and in the first step towards setting it right again. There are a number of ways to avoid the sort of the guilt that Barbara Brown Taylor is talking about. You can dispute the rules. They don't apply to me. They're, a, they're a, a factor of some ancient, irrelevant religion. There are other, we could spend a long time talking about that. But I would ask you to consider this. The number of times you've judged someone, someone else's behavior, by your concept of what's moral or immoral, right or wrong. When's the last time you did that? It's probably yesterday. If not, I want to spend more time with you and learn. Because I do it all the time. I see somebody doing something, I think, that's just wrong. Well, what standard am I referring to? Where have I built this sense of morality that I think is right or wrong? And in not just some temporary sense, but in an absolute sense, something that needs to be dealt with. Somebody enslaving somebody in Pakistan for 20 years, their family. It's wrong. Our own guilt over our actions or our lack of compassion and the futility of self-transformation becomes this 
huge burden. So the sort of experience that's parallel to painting on, painting blood on your doorstep, I mean on your doorframe, means you abandon your means of forgiveness and living with it, and then live within the freedom of not having to earn something, but to trust that when you've done those acts of kindness or you've extended yourself in places you're uncomfortable, your vulnerability is actually the gift of the lamb and becoming part of that message. You are not improving your standing. You are standing with all of us, none of us better than the other, Egyptian or Israelite. Another word that sort of has fallen out of favor is the word repentance. Sort of invokes this fire and brimstone kind of thing, you know? Repent or this will happen to you. And Barbara Brown puts it, Barbara Brown Taylor puts it this way. Repentance begins with the decision to return to relationship, to accept our God-given place in community. Needless to say, this often involves painful changes, which is why most of us prefer remorse to repentance. We would rather say, I'm sorry, so sorry, I feel really awful about what, I've, what I have done than actually start doing things differently. Chronic guilt is the price we are willing to pay to avoid change. Chronic guilt is the price we are willing to pay to avoid change. What does repentance look like? I don't know if you're a parent in this audience and you've tried to get your kid to repent. Uh, my stories are ripe with, okay, they say they're sorry, but you're determined that they don't mean it. And now you want to look for some deeper evidence of that sorrow. It's probably more remorse. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry you're so mad, but I wish you weren't. Um, and so you say, no, you have to really be sorry. But oftentimes what we did, we would make our kids hug each other if it was a fight between them. Okay, hug each other. I kind of broke down the I'm sorry, remorseful side into the I'm sorry and got a little more personal, a little more intimate than they cared to experience. And I think the same is, is true for us. It's easy for us to say, I'm really sorry I did that again. And we sort of, there's a sense of remorse about it. But I'm not sure we've thought about that and turned and said, okay, why am I doing that? I'm doing that because I believe I'm the only one who can fix it. That this message of the new exodus was great for the Egyptians, but not so much for me. I do a lot of stuff on my own. I'm pretty good at getting stuff done, except my roof. Um, but... That's not the message that I want applied to my life. I want, to, I want somebody to keep score and tell me, hey, if you do this and this and this, you'll be all right. But that's not the message of the Lamb. The Bible says that there's no more need for sacrifice. The only sacrifice that's necessary is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. One that's willing to admit that we need something that we don't have within ourselves. And that something has been provided by the Lamb of God who comes to take away that sin, who comes to shatter our self-independence and our, you know, our thought that we can do this on our own. 
I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And I just wanted to end with these verses from Isaiah. Because we also want to look forward to, okay, we know this isn't the the end end. There's an ending coming beyond this. So this redemption, this second redemption, will end somewhere else. And, And Isaiah talks about it in these terms. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. No, microphone. Let's stand. This song might be unfamiliar to some of you, so I'm going to sing it through once, and then let's all sing the whole song again. <laughs> 